She was just seven years old when her father said, why don't we take a photo? Most kids hearing this wouldn't be afraid, but this young girl was about to have the last photo taken of her with two legs. This is really happening, she said. They're going to amputate my leg and take it away from me. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just life. put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. Just dug even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't. That I? was the turning point. Hi, I'm Phil Colgan. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast, where I talk to mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. People who take chances. Those who swerve off the predictable road, face their fears, and refuse to say no. Amazingly resilient people who are motivated and tenacious. Those who have said bucket and who epitomize what it means to ticket before you kick it. Sarah Reinenson was born with a rare genetic disorder, which in the most extreme cases means amputation. At just seven years old, Sarah had to face the worst case scenario. But for this fighter, it meant the beginning of an incredible journey to overcome the odds, overcome heartache and defeat, beat stereotypes, and attempt to take on the biggest physical and mental challenge of her life. Look at that. Welcome to Bucket. Thank you. It's great to be here. You're here because you're a bucket person. Thank you. I'm honored to be a bucket person. I'm glad to be recognized as a bucket person. <laughs> and you are absolutely, you epitomize what it means to be a bucket person. I was wondering if you could take us into the story that I started when you're seven years old, because that really, I guess, was the first big pivotal moment of your life. Yeah, my... Um... When my dad came into the room and said to me, you know, Sarah, let's take a picture. This is going to be the last picture with your two legs. Um, we had opted to have my left leg amputated above the knee, but it didn't become real until my dad came in and wanted to take that photograph me of me with my two legs for the last, last picture. Why do you think it was important for him to suggest that you take that photo I think probably it was my dad's way of processing it himself. And, you know, I think now I have a lot of respect for how my parents guided me through that process and in, in becoming uh, an amputee. But also as an older person, I think about how tough it must have been for them to let their seven-year-old girl go through that type of surgery. And, and we didn't have Google back then. Like they didn't really have a lot of um, resources to know that, like, is this the right decision to make? Is this the, what we should be doing to our little girl? Is amputation really the way to go? And, um, so I think my dad, when he took that photo of me, it was him preparing himself for this. And also I think it prepared me, um, to, to honor that moment. Like this is going to be it. Um, yeah, but it was emotional. I think after once he asked me to take that photo, I mean, that's when the tears came. I think I had been trying to be brave the whole time. And then it was like, oh, my God, this is it. And I just remember um, kind of crying myself to sleep that night because, yeah, I was about to lose something. How does a seven-year-old process that? Well, my parents gave me, like, they brought me to the children's hospital at NYU where I had my surgery. And so I met, um, I met with the surgeon that was going to perform the surgery. And, and they also really kind of gave me three choices. They said, look, we could, we could leave the leg as it is, but the leg was deformed and weakened, or we could do internal prosthetics, um, which meant surgery every time I grew, 
or we could do an amputation. And in my seven-year-old mind, I was like, I'll take the two surgeries, please. Cause I didn't want to have surgery every time I grew. I mean, I hated buying shoes every time I grew. So I didn't want to have a surgery every time I grew. And so in my little seven-year-old mind, that was pretty simple uh, to make that decision. Um, but also I had to simplify it because it was a very complex thing and an, and an adult thing to have to deal with at seven years old. So tell us why this had to happen. I hadn't heard of PFFD yeah. until I read your story. <laughs> so um, PFFD is proximal femoral focal deficiency. In the simplest terms, um, it means that I didn't have the tissues in my left limb to stimulate the right growth. And so um, basically my thigh bone stopped growing. And, um, you know, I was born in the 70s and my mom took a medication that they do not give women that are pregnant. Um, and she took it in her first trimester before she knew she was pregnant. So they think that's what affected me as the fetus growing inside of her. Um, you know, um, it affected just the, the development. And as a result, when I popped out in the world, um, my thigh bone was essentially missing and it stopped growing. Hence the reason that if you hadn't had the amputation, you would have had to have this corrective surgery to what stretch the leg or what would they yeah, do? Yeah, they would give me a thigh bone and they mm. would lengthen the thigh bone every time I grew. Oh. And so that just, it seemed painful. It just sounded like, um, and uh, yeah, I didn't like being in the hospital much. And growing up with um, a medical deformity, I think I was also very used to being sort of poked and prodded and looked at and, and I had to get fitted with these leg braces. And so I had a very acute understanding of the medical world. I felt like I spent a lot of my childhood in and out of hospitals and in and out of uh, prosthetic facilities and bracing facilities. So... At seven, I was sort of used to having to deal with, grapple with medical issues, you know, way before a lot of people have to, to deal with those types of things. You were on season 10 of Amazing Race. That's yes. right. Yes, that's how I know you, is season 10 of The Amazing Race. Right, and I, and I do remember my birthday in Mongolia, and there was a long hill that you and your partner, Peter, had to run up to get to the top, and it was freezing cold. Yes. And I thought, I'm never going to forget this birthday. But I do remember you running up that hill and that experience of you guys being on Amazing Race. And if I'm not mistaken, you were the first amputee that we'd had on the show. Is that correct? Yeah, I was the first amputee that they had casted on the show up until that time. There have been other athletes. Since, I knew. Yeah. yeah, I need to you know acknowledge Bethany Hamilton and some um, Amy Purdy. There have been some really amazing um, examples of other folks. But I was the first. That was season 10. And I have to be honest, I think it was an experiment for both of us. I yeah. think I didn't really know if I was going to be able to do all the tasks. And I'm sure that production wasn't quite quite sure if I could do all the tasks, but it was a great experiment for all of us. And, and actually being a contestant on that show, it was such an amazing life lesson because I, I'd like to call myself a bucket person, but that also challenged me to look at my bucket list in a much wider, like it opened up the aperture completely for me. And I yeah. realized that I wasn't pushing the envelope nearly as much as I needed to. And The Amazing Race taught me that. Well, you know, there would have been young girls out there who are amputees who would have seen the show. I mean, you, that's the power of you representing yourself the way you did and giving it everything you had. So just go back now to when you're seven years old mm -hmm. and then what your life was like after this dramatic change. So this, your dad says, let's take this picture. Let's document this moment in your life. Then how do you move on from there as a seven-year-old? What's your life like after that? Well, you know, after... Um 
at seven years old after my amputation, I just kind of folded back into my world, but I was a little limited. Like I was a tough kid that liked to do sport, but because of my disability and because of the time that I grew up in, a lot of people didn't include me in being an athlete and being in sports and so forth. And so I was the type of kid that spent a lot of my childhood sitting on the sidelines. Like I didn't always uh, jump into those team sports because I had a tough time. I couldn't run on this. Were you embarrassed by your situation? What was it? Oh yeah. I was, I was, first of all, I had a leg this, you know, after my amputation, the, this fancy new leg that I got was basically a hollow wooden leg with two hinges on the side and a rubber foot. And so you have to remember, like you said, <laughs> that w- you, you're born in the seventies yeah. and so it's the technology that was available then was very different. Yeah, they didn't have carbon fiber. They didn't have hydraulics. They didn't have any of these fancy prosthetics you see today. I mean, it was basically a hollow wooden leg with two hinges. And and they only gave me a couple of lessons on how to walk with it. I didn't learn how to run. They didn't look like these cool robot legs that you now see. And they didn't even look like a real human leg. I just sort of felt like... So I did spend a lot of my childhood trying to hide my two legs, trying to blend in. I didn't want to stand out, even though inevitably I did stand out. Um, so it really wasn't until I started meeting other amputees and learning about better technology that I realized that I could create a different future for myself. I didn't have to be the kid that was on the sidelines. When did you meet the first amputee after you had your amputation? Well, I didn't meet a lot. I didn't meet many amputees after my amputation because, you know, you would go to the facility and get your legs made, but I didn't, I'd never met anyone that was my age. So between seven and 11 was sort of like this sort of dark period in my life. And at 11 years old, I met this other amputee at a 10K race out on Long Island. It was a road race, an athletic event, just a local event. And that was the first time once I saw someone else running on a prosthetic leg, it was like, wait a minute, you mean if they can run on a prosthetic leg, maybe I could figure out how to do it. Maybe I don't have to be sitting on the sidelines in my gym class you know, embarrassed and afraid to run. If she can run, maybe I could learn how to run. Now, who was it that you saw run? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. It's a woman named Patty Rossback, and she was a nurse at Hospital for Special Surgery in Sloan Kettering, and she had lost her leg at the age of six years old. She was walking across the street in London, and a truck ran a red light and ran into her, and she was lucky to walk away alive. And when I met her at that time, she was in her 40s. I was in 11 and she had you know was a nurse and was married and she'd done nine marathons and I was like wait you've done a marathon on a prosthetic leg I had never seen that before and, and she became my hero she became so you met her that day? I met her I met her at this race on on Long Island and um, I feel very lucky that I got to be there and I just happened to meet her and why were you at the 10k race like what was the yeah my dad was a runner he oh, okay. I say my dad was a, a like a weekend warrior and um, he loved to do these races around Long Island and he dragged me to this 10k race and my brother and I were just waiting for him to finish up the race so we could get on with our weekend so you see her run and then where does your life go from there Well, she actually introduced me at the same race uh, to a coach, a guy named David Balsley, who was a physical therapist, and he taught me how to run. I didn't know how to run until I was 11 years old. So um, to find... You've never tried? 
I just never could figure out the balance. Like it's really hard on a moving hinge, like not having your knee, you don't have that pulling up phase when you right. walk. And so um, I would kind of get a couple strides, but the knee would bend underneath me. And I also didn't have a carbon fiber foot. It was just this rubber satched foot, almost like a doll's foot. And I remember it didn't even have toenails. So I would like draw little squares on there because I mean, what little girl didn't want to paint her toenails? And then it, it, I had to wear these thick wool socks and it was only held on by a belt around my waist. So it wasn't even like held on to me. Like today, my leg is held on by suction. So it really feels like it's part of me. But back then it could fall off like very easily. Where is the amputation? Like how far up on your leg is it? Yeah, so my amputation is above uh, the knee. So just above like my left knee, almost to the end. I have a fairly long stump. So I have a mechanical knee joint and then um, it goes down to a foot. But back then the mechanical joint was like two hinges. It was like a free swinging door. And that's what sort of made it dangerous to kind of even run on it. Like now I have, um, I have multiple hydraulic knees. So they kind of change the speed depending on whether I'm running or walking, you know. Um, but I didn't have that as a kid. It was just so basic. When did you figure out that you loved the motion of running? A, that you could run, and then B, that you loved that feeling of running? I think um, as soon as I learned to run, I just loved that feeling, right? That rush that you get of the wind blowing through your hair. But I also found it came at a very a time in my life, like at 11 years old, that's a tough time for any young person. You're like becoming a tween to a young person, like that teenager, and you've got a lot of hormones and stuff. And I'm so glad I discovered running because running helped me deal with growing up and becoming a teenager. And, and I didn't love my body until I started running because I always hated the fact that I was missing a leg. And I always looked down at my legs and sort of hated myself. But once I started running, I was like, wow, I have this other good leg and I have these arms. And I, it completely shifted myself from hating my body to loving my body. Okay. So you but, start yeah. running at 11, but yeah. then within within two years, oh, yeah. you, you're, you're super fast. Well, once I start how racing- How does this happen? Because how many 13 year olds, am I right? You had, yeah. a, you had a world record at 13. I did. How, I... Does, how does somebody who's never run go from going to a race, seeing somebody run, getting inspired, starting to run, and then, oh, hello, I have a world record. Yeah, it happened pretty quickly. I think, you know, once I started racing in the races for people with disabilities and yeah. racing against other amputees, that's when I realized that I actually did have some talent. I might not have been able to beat the school kids, but against the other one-legged women, I was actually pretty good. And so within two years of learning to run, I did set my first world record in the 100-meter dash. I had an American record, and then I set the record as, as well on the 200-meter and then the 400-meter. So it was a pretty uh, quick trajectory. And so, and honestly, I learned to run at 11 by 17 years old. I was on the U S disabled track team and I'd gotten my first Paralympic games. It's pretty so. extraordinary, <laughs> right? It, it yeah. Was, was, did that give you this new purpose in life? Like suddenly, oh, okay, I have my thing now. I mean, what, 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 what did it do to, for you? You know, when I 
started running and getting success, it's actually, I think it's when I started writing my first bucket list. I was a big journal keeper as a kid. And I remember being, um, as a teenager, writing in my journal that one day I was going to go to the Paralympic Games and win a gold medal for my country. I mean, that was my first bucket list that this is what I was going to do. And that really became my North Star that was guiding me. That was like, I didn't, I didn't really get, I mean, of course I was a teenage girl and I got caught up in the prom and, and doing well in school and that kind of stuff. But I really did. It, it gave me this focus, my, my own thing that I could sink my teeth into. I think every teenager wants to find something, whether they're like the, the drama kid or the band geek or right. the, you and that know, was so, your thing. That was my did thing. Did it give you running. street credit school? Did, did, did you get respect from your fellow students and friends or yeah, How did they respond absolutely. to it? This was, I think this is when um, I, I started to embrace standing out yeah. because I could stand out. Hey, I am out. different. I am different. And that's and, okay. And, I, and like, look at me how fabulous it is to be different. I'm getting to race in these competitions and traveling the world. I had competed in France and in Canada, and it gave me that international travel bug of ex exploration and competition and I and I loved it and it did give me street cred and it and it gave me confidence and I stopped actually hiding my prosthetic I started like owning you know, it yeah owning it and taking and, and, the leg off this, yeah. how quickly was the technology changing with the prosthetics yeah pretty quickly I would say by the time I was 16 17 18 the legs had started to change. We saw our first track running feet for just on the track. We saw carbon fiber feet. There was a foot that was invented. Did you own like many different legs? I started my leg collection <laughs> then. Leg collection. That's when I Do you could, have a yes. reasonably large leg collection at this point? I do. And it's funny. I actually keep my, like some people keep their baby shoes. I yes. still have some of my baby legs and things. And really? I keep Where do you keep your the, legs out of interest? Well, I do, they're in our garage right now. In the now. garage? <laughs> Come on. Shouldn't they be mounted on the they wall somewhere? Probably. We Live, we live tiny, but um, oh. yeah, I, so I have them just in a box. And then I have the legs that I'm currently using. I do have a, I have a custom How many legs do you own right now? So a uh, one, two, That you three. use, that you use on a regular basis? Well, I'm getting a new set made. So I'm getting another three made. So that's three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I probably have eight legs or so. Okay. Can you yes. explain to me why? I mean, I know you're a modern woman, but why do you need eight legs? Well, what, what are they all for? Well, especially during a triathlete. I'm a triathlete. So I need different sports different legs just for my sport. Okay. So I have a, the walking leg that I came in on into your studio. I'm wearing okay. that. That's my walking leg. Okay. And then I have a leg. Um, it's actually in my car, but I have my running leg and that's a separate leg. And that has like that, um, that running foot on it. It's yep. based on the cheetah, that fastest land animal. Is that's that the one that's got a little bit of a spring in it? Exactly. That we've seen all the sprinters at the Paralympics running on, they sort of spring. Yeah. Okay. It kind of bounces off of that, that, uh, design. Um, so I have, uh, a flex run and that is, um, my running leg. And then I have my cycling leg, which the bike cleat is bolted just to the bottom of that. So I don't wear a bike shoe. I just ah. have my cleat bolted right to so the bottom of the So you save money on cycling shoes. Well, exactly. I was like, I don't need to, I just, well, they don't sell me one. That's, oh, that's the problem. True. That's true. And then I also have a high heel leg. I have two of those, one that's covered like with the skin on it and it has toenails and everything. And then I have one that's not covered that also is a high heel leg that I can push. Is that your dancing leg as well? That is my dancing leg. I often go to the nightclub with that because sometimes I like to show the raw metal and it's part of the outfit. Okay. Is it hard like choosing the skin color? Because if you're tanned and you know, like, do you get that? You have to like, I always fault on the tanner because it's like, yeah, so then I can, my skin can catch up, but yes, it is hard to get several colors. to pick one. <laughs>
But I have, and then it has a button on it though that I can adjust the heel height of this ah, shoe. Depending on what depending shoe you're on wearing. Depending on what shoe I buy. Who so. knew that there was so much to know about Yes, legs. so that's my Barbie leg. And then I even have a leg for uh, yoga that I use that can also, the ankle can flex. Does it help you get into downward facing dog? It does a little bit. I'm more flexible to my prosthetic side than my real side. No, I'm, um, but yeah, it does help me get into a better downward dog so I can hit the ankle for that. All right, so world record, 13 years yeah. old. You're fast. You know you're fast. You're running past other young women who are also amputees. You feel great. So then what happens? Well, I, um, so I made it to the Paralympic Games. I mean, I am the world record holder in my division. And, you know, this... And your division being? Uh, above knee amputees. So in Barcelona, I competed in my division. And we had, uh, because there weren't many women, they combined us in a, a big group of classifications. Um, but I didn't have a good race at my first Paralympic Games. And although I was the world record holder going in, um, I came in fourth in the semifinal heats and didn't even move on to finals. And I failed. And why I Why would didn't you say you failed? Why, why would you call that a fail? Well, nobody goes to the Olympics gunning for fourth place. No, but you were a world record holder. So obviously something just was off, right? Yeah, I had a bad day. And, yeah. um, you know, what wasn't right is why I didn't have a good start. Um, I think um, in the 100-meter dash, if you have a bad start, it's really hard to make up the, the line. And I had some really good competitors. I mean, I was competing against women, too, that um, they combined the arm amputees and the leg amputees. So I was racing against some women who were missing their arm below the elbow. So they had two legs and only missing an arm. So mm. it wasn't exactly a fair race. But no. I did. <laughs> no. So I don't think we can call that a fail because. I, yeah, yeah, I mean, that seems a little odd. Well, I didn't, you know, you're right. It was, um, it's, I didn't get the result I wanted. Sounds like you've beaten yourself up about this a wee bit. I know. I really, I still, obviously it's many years ago that I went to the Paralympic games and it's interesting. 1992. 1992. And I yeah. still, I guess I do see it as a failure, but I also knew, know that that failure became fuel for the fire. So you said that you felt like you were a failure after 92, after the Paralympics yeah. in Spain. Yeah. And then you gave up running? You, you wanted to stop? Yeah, after, after not winning that medal in Barcelona, I did kind of give up for a while. I wanted to quit. I, it was so disappointing to pour my heart and soul into something and then not get the result that I wanted. Um, I quit. I gave up. I definitely stopped running and it was actually um meeting another amputee that kind of ignited the spark within me again i was getting my leg fixed um you know i go to this prosthetic shop and i have to get my leg worked on uh, every once in a while and so i was in uh, queens getting my leg worked on and another patient was there this guy named jim mclaren and he at the time he had just lost his limb um, from a motorcycle accident he was riding his uh, motorcycle down um, Fifth Avenue when a New York City bus ran into him and nearly killed him. But he was lucky to walk away with the amputation of his left leg below the knee. And um, he was in the shop that day getting his leg worked on because he was getting ready to do the Hawaii Ironman. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I didn't even know about what the Hawaii Ironman Because you Iron were a was. runner. 
I was a runner. And you were a fast runner. Yes. And short distances. Yes, a hundred meter dash. I had okay. never heard, I mean, I'd heard of the marathon, but I was like, wait, people do something more than the marathon. They do this thing called Ironman. Okay, um, so an Ironman. So Man. an Ironman is a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, followed by a 26.2 mile run. In metric, that is a marathon. <laughs> that's a marathon, exactly. <laughs> At the end, after everything else. After everything else. So it's quite, um, so I, you know, to meet this amputee who was doing Ironman on one leg to t- all that swimming and all that biking and then doing a marathon, I was just in awe of what this guy Jim was doing. And I remember he even said to me that day, I, I just, like when he told me about it, I just thought, I would love to do an Ironman one day like him. And I said that to him. I said, I would love to do an Ironman one day. And he looked at me and he was like, I don't think a girl on a prosthetic leg could do that. He said that or he, <laughs> you think he thought that? No, he said that. I mean, he might have said something like, I, I don't know any girls that can do it. But I heard him say, you know, I don't know a girl that could do that on a prosthetic oh, leg. Oh, boy, did he say that to the wrong person? Exactly. I immediately I thought to myself, yes, he has met this girl. It is me and I'm going to do the Ironman one day. And, and I wrote in my journal that like one day I was going to do an Ironman just you like really you. You really are a, a bucket lister. <laughs> yes. You are, you, you're, yeah. you're putting that down to tick it off. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I wrote it down that I was going to do an Ironman. I didn't know how to ride a bike. I didn't really know how to swim. I mean, I was a 100-meter dash runner, but I, I knew if this guy could figure it out, why couldn't I figure it out? But it wasn't until a year later that I actually did anything about it because um, my friend Jim was doing um, a triathlon in Orange County, California, near to where I live today. Another gym? The same gym. Oh, the same gym. Same gym. gym. Okay. He's, he'd done Ironman, but he was just doing this little race in Mission Viejo, California, a little sprint distance triathlon. And... Um, he was on the bike course of this race and a cop let a van onto the race course, not realizing how fast the cyclists were coming through. So when my friend Jim came around the corner, he collided with the van and he broke his neck and became a quadriplegic. And I just was, I, I couldn't believe when I got the news that my friend Jim... After the, what he'd already been through. Yeah, that he'd lost his leg from a motorcycle accident and now here he is you know, doing Ironmans, and he has this bad misfortune, this bad luck of hitting a bike, I mean, hitting a truck or on a closed bike course and becoming a quadriplegic. Like, two accidents to the same person. Like, I just, I couldn't believe that that could happen. Like, you know, my youngness, my young naivete made me think, that in some ways I was bulletproof. Like I already had my disability. I wasn't going to have another, another accident, accident. But then when Jim had his accident, it was like, hang on. Tragedy is not evenly parsed in this world. And who knows how long I'm going to have the body that I have, even with all its imperfections. Yeah. So um, that's when I started to train for the Ironman. You know, I was, oh, I was relentless and just knowing what I wanted to do. I was driven. I was obsessed. Okay. So Kona, let's talk about Kona. Yeah. What year? 2004? <laughs> 2004. Um, I uh, qualified to get a slot. This is the Super Bowl the of Godfather. triathlons. the Godfather. Okay. Yes. The Super Bowl. This Super okay. Bowl of triathlons is the Hawaii Ironman. And it's, uh, it's on the big island in Kona. It's also one of the toughest courses. It's actually where Ironman started, but it's tough because it's, it's windy, it's humid, there's not a drop of shade. And I am the first woman on a prosthetic leg 
who's who's ever going to attempt who's attempted to do this Hawaii Ironman. And how important was that for you? The idea that you were the first. That was, I think, that was a little. That was everything. I mean, that yeah. was what I was, you know, trying to prove this this guy Jim wrong. But then it became this larger mission of proving uh, to myself that I could do this, but also to prove to the world. I mean, I think in many ways I was still there's still part of me that's that young seven year old kid that was used to being on the sidelines, and now I was going to play on the biggest field in one of the toughest sports in endurance. Um, and play at the world championships at the Hawaii Ironman. And uh, I feel like at this point, I've done five marathons. I've done, you know, at this point, 10 to 15 triathlons. They're short distance, but I can do this thing, you know, fly over to Kona and I'm going to be on the uh, NBC show. They do a feature about me. They fly out to my place in California and follow me. You are already at the finish line. And I thought, yeah, like, I'm ready for this. Like, I fly over to Kona to think, okay, this is it. I'm making this dream come true. I have a great swim, um, feeling really good, hop out of the water. I get on the bike. Um, I'm pedaling on the bike, and I feel like, oh, my God, I am in the Hawaii Ironman. Just like all those hours of race coverage I've watched in my living room on my bike trainer. Like, here I am on the Queen K. Well, the winds shift a lot in Kona. And so when I, when I started to climb Javi, the winds start shifting again. And when I finally get to the turnaround, it's, it's, not, it's not like it's hard enough already. And now you've got to climb. I got to climb. And Javi's a big climb. And I don't want to overstate the obvious, but I'm out there pedaling on one leg. You know, um, so when I, like I, I've done the spin scan test on my bike, like on my, out of my good leg, I'm getting 90% of my power. I'm only getting 10% out of that little prosthetic leg because especially not having a knee, I can kind of, I can pull up, but my push down is a little weaker. So I'm really just pulling up because I'm on that hinge. So if I only had a knee, I'd, I'd, get, I'd get much more power, but I'm really only getting 10%. So when you start climbing up a hill, like that starts to make a difference. And so... Um, my little bike and my little wheels are climbing up this Javi. And then when I came back down that hill, the winds had shifted. So now I'm pedaling into a headwind going downhill. (laughs) And um, I just started losing time. And I could see the sun was setting quick. And I know from all my spreadsheets in Excel that I am like, losing i'm not maintaining the right miles per hour that i need to to make the bike cut off and now i'm starting to get nervous that i might not make the cutoff like it hit me probably in the last at mile 80 or so i was like i don't i don't think i'm gonna make it like the sand is moving through the hourglass and i don't have enough sand left this is not gonna work out and the camera crew is right there capturing every moment of me and i i think i took in actually too many calories i was drinking a lot of calories um it's like some carbohydrate powder and my body just started rejecting it so now i'm puking and trying to pedal. And so all on the cameras are on me as I'm pedaling, 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 puke, pedaling, puke, pedaling, puke. Like it was just ugly out there. And I missed the cutoff by 14 minutes. I come into the final transition at Hawaii Ironman and I come in and I know that I am too late. And they had a chair set up for me. I pull up on my bike and they're like, you know, sit down. We got to take your chip. And they take your timing chip. I'm like, that's it. You're out of the race. And I just sat there. Um, 
and just started crying because I just couldn't believe that I just failed. I failed on national TV. I've been gunning for this goal for over 11 years. And all I can hear is the announcer at Ironman, you know, the race is still going on and I can just hear Mike Riley announcing all the other finishers. Like, I can't remember their names, but I just hear him saying, you know, John Smith, you are an Ironman. Phil Kogan, you're an Ironman. And I just sat there like, I am not going to be an Ironman. Like, I just failed. Um, and it was, it was devastating and, and, and embarrassing. I was so embarrassed when the cameras were right there and I just thought... Why, why did I just tell the world I was going to do this? Because I just failed. Do you still look back at that moment and think that that was a failure? Or was that just a necessary step to achieving your goal? I actually look at that moment in Kona when I didn't finish the first time as one of the best things to ever happen to me, actually. Why? Because um, I needed to go through that moment. I needed to find humility. I also needed to maybe push myself even further than I was doing. You know, I, um, I think I had a lot more to learn on the bike. I had a lot more to learn on the swim. I had, um, there were still lessons to be learned. I always say to people in life, when you work for something and you work really hard for something, that feeling you, you have to have gone through the hardships to really appreciate what it is you have. Like I said to someone, imagine if I just gave you a million dollar home. Here's your million dollar home. And you said, here's the keys. And they just walked into the door and they had this home. Such a different feeling from if someone has worked for two decades, made sacrifices, saved, done extra hours, and then they get the keys to the home and they walk through that door. So maybe, maybe what you went through was like, you know, you weren't going to just have this handed to you. Yeah, no, I wasn't. I'm so glad I didn't because it, it was so much more meaningful to, to, to do more work. By like 11 o'clock that evening, I was already like, okay, we're coming back. We're going to do this. It was like a pretty that quick, quick turnaround. Oh, yeah. No, I went to So the- way quicker than when you felt like you failed at the Olympics in 92. Absolutely. I think, you know, I was older. I was more mature. And I realized, you know, that like... I never want to look back on my life and say, oh, I wish I had spent more time feeling sorry for myself. And that's what I did the first time I failed in Barcelona. I spent a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. And I did, wasn't going to do that in Kona. How did you pick up the pieces from there? Yeah, I, I, I called it my unfinished business, that I had unfinished business in Kona. And so I was determined that I was going to come back and conquer this island and conquer this course. So... Um, I, I became even more obsessed. I was already obsessed with Ironman, but I became more obsessed. And I trained even harder. I, I changed the team sometimes too, right? If the plan didn't go well the first time, you got to really look at that and see what changes you can alter in your plan to get a different result. So I hired a new coach. I, um, I worked with a bike company and they custom designed a bike to fit exactly me. I bought race wheels. I just like, I, um, I, I signed up for a race in Hawaii because I figured more chance to race on that course. Um, I, I flew over there for training weekends and stuff. I mean, I, I also like cut out all the other noise. I knew too that for the next year, that was my focus. And so if it wasn't necessary to do, to going to Ironman, I didn't do it. So like 
my dad was getting married the same weekend I wanted to do a 100-mile bike ride. And I was like, I love you, Dad. Um, I love your fiance, but I'm not coming to the wedding. I have to train that weekend. It was like very easy to like, it was hard to make those sacrifices missing family weddings. Has your dad forgiven you? (laughs) Yeah, my dad has forgiven me. It was his third wedding, so Uh, I figured he'd, you know. (laughs) A hall pass was fine because, you know. Come on, dad. You can't keep doing this. Number three. Yeah, really? Three strikes and he's still going. No, he's, we love, this is good. We, he's still on his third marriage. Okay, good. And um, we haven't gotten number you, four. No, but, I, yeah, I won't no. make that joke about but, going to um, huh. But yeah, I mean, it was, but those are sacrifices that you make. And I think a lot of times when you want to achieve something, you have to be willing to make those sacrifices. And um, it's not always easy, but what you have to do is very clear. Got a couple so. of quotes here I like. Yeah. We have inside of us the human potential to achieve and do great things of Olympic sized proportions. That sounds like it might be me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then as a little motivation on, on your fridge, you had, look at you, Sarah, look how fit you are. <laughs> yes, that's true. I used to, yeah, <laughs> I still, I still do motivation things. Like sometimes I'll print out things with my label maker and I'll stick them on my bike. Yeah. I like quotes or people or things to remind me to be strong when I'm out there. I'm very much into self-coaching. You know, I have, I hired a coach um, in, to help me with my training, but I also see that your best advocate and your best coach is often yourself. And sometimes you can really be, um, your mind can be your greatest weapon or your greatest enemy. And I always try to use it as a weapon or a coach um, to lift me up instead of put myself down. I'd love to read this quote to you. You've said, I want to inspire anyone who has challenges in their lives whether they're visible like mine or not. I've spent my life focusing on my adaptability rather than disability. And that's something that served me well in every facet of my life. Truth. So why, <laughs> why has this seven-year-old girl who went through this really challenging time in her life, why is she so motivated to inspire others? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I um, am making up for lost time. And, and I also see in the work that I've done, and even as far as I feel like we've, we've changed our culture, um, I still meet kids or people who have become disabled that are, are still being left on the sidelines. You know, um, I do a lot of charity work and I still hear about kids who are like, yeah, I tried out for my team bas- you know, my school basketball team and I wanted to participate and I've only gotten to play one game the entire season. And so I still feel like there's a lot of work to, to be done in order to shift this mindset of how we open up, um, accessibility and adaptability to all people. And, and I know that because of my life as an athlete, I have, um, I've had the privilege of having so many opportunities. I mean, um, I'm an athlete that gets my legs given to me and not, not everybody who has a disability can get access to the running legs that I have. I mean, so that's also, I feel like it's my job as a, a citizen, a good citizen in the world. To, as a role model. As a role model and to make sure the opportunity is there for somebody else. Every kid who's an amputee should be able to get a running leg if they want a running leg. And so that's where I want to inspire people, but I also want to empower people and equip people for, to, to find that adaptability in their own life. 
And this sort of leads nicely into the work that you're doing now because... Yeah, I'm working um, for Nike in their Innovation Kitchen. I'm part of the Nike Universal Ease team. And we we came out with these shoes that open up in the heel. We were inspired by a young man with cerebral palsy who wrote a letter to Nike saying, you make great shoes, but I can't wear them. Um, Because of my AFOs and because of my disability, I can't get the shoes on and I can't tie them. And so we came up with a system called FlyEase where you just, with the zipper, they they wrap around and you don't even need two hands to tie the shoes. So we're looking at making shoes more accessible for, for everybody. You're a dreamer. And you've said, you're never too old to dream a new dream. That's true. Um, So what is your dream now? I want to do some more rock climbing after I do some Ironmans. I've got the Hawaii Ironman. But beyond that, I'm interested in doing more diving. I mean, there's, and, and I've gotten to all seven continents in the world, but there's still so many more things I want to explore. Um, I've never ridden my bike across the country. That's kind of dangling out there too for me i know I that you, you could you could uh, tell me a little bit about that but i uh, thoroughly recommend it yeah just got to do it safely but yes i can help you out with the route too okay no yeah. good i would love to i mean i see that's the thing i'm always inspired when i mean you're a man after my own heart like when i see you do something like that i'm like see like i could do that one yeah, but day now you make me want to go do the iron man <laughs> and and i can't help but notice that there's a certain necklace hanging around your neck and i just want to make sure you have this because what? So I wear this Ironman necklace because I finished the Hawaii Ironman in 2005. I did it in 15 hours and five minutes, and I became the first woman on a prosthetic leg uh, to finish that race. See, I want to clap. It's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, wow. Um, but and see- what was that feeling like knowing that only a year before you had sat in that chair, listened to the announcer, talk about... All these people were coming across the line who were announced as Iron Man, and here you are a year later, and you finally achieve your goal. God, that must have felt good. It was amazing. I mean, I went across that finish line, finally hear those words, Sarah Reinertsen, you are an Iron Man. That's All right, I'm going to end with a couple of final questions yes. here. Um, the last time that you cried because you were laughing so hard. So the last time I laughed until I cried was actually just a couple of weekends ago. I was with my family and I was my mom and my brother and we had just, we laughed until we cried. You know, it's like with your family, you can get that belly laugh. And it was just only because we were telling stories about funny things my brother did as a kid. Don't and you wish we could all laugh until we cried more often? That everyone, it's the best feeling in the, the world. the best medicine in the world is just to laugh. If you were to take your last breath tomorrow and you had just 24 hours to live, what would you do with your last day on earth? I think I would have a, a, I would have a party with everyone that I could round up in 24 hours. Um, and I would have the ultimate end of my life party. You know, even if it had to be simple, because like in 24 hours, I don't know what I could pull together. But yeah, that's what I would probably, I'd want to spend it my final 24 hours, I'd want to be with my friends and family. So I would like, you know, have a big party at the beach and just uh, savor my time with my most loved ones. That's cool. I love how people want to be with their family. Um, And, and now uh, think about going on a road trip, and you're going to take three people in the car with you. 
I want to bring my husband, but there's also some really fun what do you mean? people. Is there any doubt that you would bring your husband? <laughs> no, there's no doubt. But no, it sounds like think, there's doubt. Wait, yeah, but I. Where so, is your husband right now? The only thing mm. I'm saying about my husband is uh-huh. that I love him, but he's not the best cook. So we would need to like make sure. Well, just bring a cook. Well, That's bring what I'm Gordon saying. Gordon Ramsay or something. So we'll bring Daniel Hum, one oh. of the best chefs in the world. Okay, this is good. And then um, I'm thinking George Carlin because he can make me laugh. You know, people would just love to go on a road trip with George. With George Carlin, Carlin right? Yeah, Wouldn't yeah. that be kind of fun? Absolutely. And see, this is where I get stuck. Your husband's barely making the list right now. I know, because right then I thought I could bring a musician ah. to have music along the way. Can't you just turn on the stereo and then still bring your husband? Well, could he be the driver and then we bring three people? No. <laughs> no. He's... Okay. All right. So you don't then... have to have your husband there, by the way. You're, this is your own road trip. All right. So... It's just whether he's you know, going to hear this eventually. <laughs> no, I love this idea. Um, I would take my husband on this trip. And then I think... Um, I said the chef, but honestly, we could eat on the road. I think I'm going to switch that out. I'm going to say Michael Franti should come and play music and then also teach us yoga or, you know, along the way because we got to ride our bikes. So that's how I take on my road trip across the country. What an interesting trip. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, listen, thank you for talking to me. Thank you for inviting Uh, me. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what other adventures you'll be getting up to. Always. If you have a really cool story that you want to share with us, then why not share it? Maybe you'll become my next guest. Don't forget, you can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com.